Paris Perspective. Hello and welcome to this edition of Paris Perspective with me, David Coffey. Well, Australia has formally embarked on its controversial programme to equip its navy with nuclear-powered submarines in a new defence alliance with Britain and the United States. Now, the tripartite agreement allows for the exchange of sensitive naval nuclear propulsion information between the three nations in a bid to confront strategic tensions in the Indo-Pacific region. Now, China for its part, has called the agreement extremely irresponsible. The so-called AUKUS Pact, however, came at the expense of collapsing a $56 billion deal signed with Paris in 2016, which was to supply Canberra with diesel-powered submarines. France described the move as a stab in the back and infuriated by the the secretive way, should I say, in which Australia and the US and Britain collaborated to ditch the French vessels. Now, this prompted France to take the highly unusual step of temporarily recalling its ambassador from Washington. Now, to discuss the current state of Franco-US relations and indeed the Biden administration, I'm joined in studio today by former US diplomat William Jordan. William, it's great to have you on the program today. Thank you very much, David. Well, let's look at uh, this whole debacle. In the wake of that diplomatic spat between the US and France over the AUKUS deal, Vice President Kamala Harris was sent to Paris to smooth over all of the crumpled and ruffled feathers that came out of that, uh, of that uh, announcement of the AUKUS deal. Was her mission a success? Is it now water under the bridge between Paris and Washington? I don't think it's water under the bridge at all. And in fact, uh, uh, Harris's visit was preceded by uh, discussions directly between uh, President Biden and President Macron, uh, in the run-up to the uh, uh, recent climate summit in Glasgow, I think uh, they met in um, they met in Rome That's or right. the G20, and it was very clear there that uh, the French position was going to be very much one of making the Americans grovel a little bit more to show that they were going to be friendly again and they were going to be open and uh, honest in their dealings with France. So I think there's going to be a little bit more water under this bridge, but. Uh, everything that I've heard is that at least as far as the official accounts are concerned, you know, from coming from the American embassy here, uh, everybody believes that the visit uh, by Kamala Harris was, was positive. And let's face it, if an American official visits Paris, participates in all the meetings, sticks to predictable talking points, doesn't sulk and doesn't sort of, uh, you know, refuse to attend certain things because you know, they're afraid they're going to be somehow beaten up by all the other participants in these in these multilateral meetings, well, then it's a success. Mm-hmm. So, so, And indeed, for, for many looking, um, well, from a European perspective or indeed a Paris perspective, this was really, it, it seemed to be Kamala Harris's first kind of step onto the world stage. Uh, it was definitely uh, when she was given the remit, if you would, to discuss things like Libya, the defense situation there, and the upcoming elections that are happening there. So what about Kamala Harris when it comes to her position as VP back in the States? Everybody was expecting when Biden was elected that she would take very much charge of a lot of the big dossiers because Biden, with the age that he is, uh, would, would, would need her very much as uh, his right-hand woman. But she hasn't really shone or hasn't been allowed shine. Is that correct? I think it's probably more uh, that she hasn't been allowed to shine, um, and I think there may be a couple of reasons for that. I mean, first of all, I don't, I, I don't tend to uh, credit a lot of the 
uh, chit-chat and the gossip-based uh, reporting that, that – uh, or in fact commentary that passes for reporting in the American mm-hmm. media these days trying to talk about uh, Kamala Harris being sidelined or a great disappointment – uh, I would I would credit a lot of the uh, the accounts that there's tension between the uh, uh, the staffs uh, to Vice President Harris and and the president simply because in the high pressure media environment that is Washington now and with the Biden administration seeming to make so many missteps that were never expected, it's inevitable that that tension is going to play itself out, you know, at the, at the level of the two staffs. But I think that a lot of this is oversold, and it's it's purely so uh, certain opposition media like Fox News in the United States can uh, you know sell airtime and, and and that kind of thing. What I think is more important, though, is that uh, I mean Kamala Harris came on, and uh, with the idea that not only was she going to be the last person in the room, and and sort of like uh, the Obama Biden relationship during Obama President Obama's presidency, that. Um, you know, she would be the la- she would be the person that the president would always talk to, would always confide in, and would seek the advice of, and would be delegated certain key responsibilities. This is a testing phase. This is very much a, a phase of developing experience for Kamala Harris as vice president. Uh, and I think uh, you know uh, the fact that she was given such major um, responsibilities right off the bat for something that I don't think the Biden administration truly understood was as difficult as it was, namely migration from Central America. Uh, that has proven to be very, very difficult to to resolve. Mm-hmm. And as a consequence, I think it's understandable, perhaps, that uh, that has sort of faded into the background and, and, and that while she finds, you know, something that's a little bit easier and a little bit more likely to lead to a successful outcome, uh, she's taken more of a publicly- uh, uh, backseat mm-hmm. role, but I, you know, I do think that it was significant that um, she was assigned this this particular task uh, because clearly it was it was a priority of the Biden administration to try to correct you know all of that had come out of this AUKUS or AUKUS mm-hmm. uh, uh, shift in the and the um, torpedoing, if I can use that word, <laughs> of the submarine deal uh, yeah. between France and Australia. Now, Biden indeed has admitted um, that uh, his handling of the affair, or the handling, maybe not his handling, but the handling of the right. affair was clumsy. Uh, and uh, he said he thought that the French were in the loop. He was kind of, he, he was as contrite as an American president could be in this situation. Um, but looking now to the fallout of uh, this AUKUS deal. Um, the French Foreign Minister Jean-Yves Le Drian is currently looking to set up uh, a very significant deal with Indonesia, which will be a strategic um, repositioning since Canberra is no longer in favour here in Paris, uh, even to the point that before he left, uh, Le Drian went to um, Jakarta, uh, he omitted Australia from the list of allies that were uh, traditionally on France's side. But Let's have a look. I mean, they, I think there's 36 Rafale jets are carded or have been slated to be sold. And a, it has yet to be uh, inked itself, that deal. Australia's cold-shouldered. But what exactly are we looking at in the Indo-Pacific region? China has been incredibly successful because it hasn't been engaged in any outward war. What is happening? Why there's a, is there's a huge military buildup, it would appear here. Is this really going to be the next conflict zone? And what is France's role to play in this? 
Well, let me, before I get to all of that, let me just say something about the whole uh, debacle over the the submarine deal. I do think that President Biden was genuinely unaware, and, and the administration may not have been fully aware of the dynamic between France and Australia in terms of the contract. Um, there's a lot going on here that I think has a, has much to do with Britain's uh, difficult relationship with the EU mm-hmm. and France in particular in the wake of Brexit. And Anything to do with the transition from the Trump to the Biden administration? Well, and 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 that too. I, again, there, there, again, there are mm-hmm. a number of things that are that are playing out here. I mean, on the one hand, you have this you have this uh, apparent secretly concluded deal uh, to you know for the Australians to opt for nuclear submarines where they had originally accepted um, conventionally powered diesel submarines, uh, which was just a total change of the Australian opposition to uh, any kind of uh, nuclear propulsion in the past. Um, so there are a lot of questions about that. Why did they make that change? What, what, you know, was, it, was it purely a financial deal? Then there's the issue of, and I don't know the degree to which France was actually a part of this, but when you have, and this is where all, you know, uh, all blows are sort of accepted. I mean, there, there are no holds barred when it comes to arms sales competition. Mm. Uh, I think the U.S. saw, and this probably goes back to the Trump administration, they saw an opportunity here that the Australians were giving them to sell these nuclear submarines. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's, that's huge. That's, you know, this is, and, and it's not the first time that the Americans have pulled uh, the rug out from under a French arms deal and vice versa. I mean, it's happened on the other side too. And so the degree to which, you know, all of this was overplayed and oversold, and remember, this is sort of an August crisis in France, um, you know, has yet to be has yet to be determined. I'm convinced that the British had more of a role than has been let on. The Australians clearly seem to be uh, the party most in the doghouse as far as well, Paris un- is concerned. I, I, Scott Morrison has been, I think, uh, vociferously unapologetic. Right. And I think the uh, and I and, so, and you know what one of the things that I remember very clearly listening to all of this play out um, back in in August and September was that uh, even. Even people within the government party here in France were, were had questions about all of you know what was what had actually happened and why Le Drian was carrying on the way that he was, and there were calls for some sort of uh, congressional in, inquiry or not congressional parliamentary inquiry into all of this. And I thought, well, we'll never get that from the American side, but maybe the French will actually have a parliamentary inquiry. And no hearings have taken place. Nothing happens. has been fo- has followed up, and that makes me think that there is perhaps less here than the theatrics. So I, I just wanted to say all of that yeah. before I then answered your your. And it did come out in August when things were running slow. Right. Okay. <laughs> but but to, but to answer your your you know your your more immediate question, I mean, I think the French, as far as I see it, the French policy towards. Indo-Pacific and, you know, the whole idea of taking on a more confrontational uh, line vis-a-vis China Mm -hmm. has been very ambiguous, to say the least. Um, You know, the French, in fact, it was around, I think it was also in the summer, the French made a big deal about having sent a nuclear submarine on on a worldwide patrol that included uh, going through some of the disputed waters in the South China Sea uh, around that time. But up until then, every time the U.S. has has had tried to get France and other countries in Europe to line up beside it uh, in uh, you know against China, 
the reaction has been sort of, well, not quite. Mm -hmm. We don't exactly want to go all the way down that road. And so I think, um, you know, what I see happening now is almost a bit of catch up again. Let's look at the let's look at the money. I mean, the fact that the the French looking to Indonesia may be wanting to sell Rafale fighters, which is which until a couple of years ago was a difficult product for the French to sell. If they're now you know back on another uh, uh, spree of uh, trying to get get potential buyers, and they're use, and they're going to be turning to uh, the Indo Pacific region because France has already started to talk more and more about its own pivot towards Asia, mm. then I sort of see a lot of this in that context. It's it's Le Drian saying to uh, the Indo Pac countries as well as to the United States and everybody else. That hey, we matter. Hey, we've got interests, and uh, and we're here, and we intend to be more active. The big question, though, and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about this later, is the degree to which uh, this is France going it alone, or is this going to be woven into some larger uh, Western initiative? And if that's the case, where exactly does Europe as a whole fit in? Because at the moment. The last thing one would say about Europe is that it has a very uh, cohesive, coherent, or consolidated policy. Indeed, there is no common defence policy for right. Europe, and that has always been uh, something that states such as Ireland have, uh, have always been vociferously against. Of course, right. being you know you have neutral states and the like. But indeed, coming back to Europe, um, one could say that we are facing a power vacuum at the at the helm of the European Union with Angela Merkel being the de facto leader of uh, uh, the, the you know the, the European bloc um, she's on her way out um, so what does that mean for Macron's role and what does that mean now for relations directly between Macron and Biden um, Macron is he going to be filling the shoes of Merkel until let's just say Germany gets its uh, its affairs in order well, I think he'd like to. I mean, you know, Macron has been trying since he came in in 2007, came into office in 2017 mm. to sort of be the leading voice in uh, many aspects of the European project. And he's sort of off and on been either the uh, the cheerleader for a more consolidated uh, and uh, uh, unified uh, European defense and foreign policy, as well as being, you know, the biggest critic of the lack of of any kind of a policy, you know, mm -hmm. and then going to the point even extending it into NATO and calling NATO brain dead. I think the, uh, you know, the net result is that it underscores that, you know, Europe has no um, even collective leadership anymore. Uh, I think this is a consequence of Europe being as large as it is. I think it's also uh, a function of some problems within the European the European leadership as at the, at the level of EU institutions, mm. you know, the, the fighting between, uh, what was it, uh, uh, Michel and uh, van der Leyen, you know, over who sat where exactly, during... Exactly, with uh, Mr. Erdogan right, over in, and, uh, and Ankara, I, yeah. in, in Ankara. And I think, uh, you know, Europe has to get its own act in order. I'm not sure, though, that there's a lot of enthusiasm for uh, Macron stepping in. Merkel, as sort of uh, the de facto head of Europe, I think is uh, is perhaps uh, over over overstated too. I think that you know what 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 Angela Merkel represented was sure, steady leadership of her own country, being the biggest economic power <coughs> in the bloc, and I think the uh, uh, you know from that and and being sort of in a position to sort of hold off you know, some of uh, Emmanuel Macron's more 
ambitious aims, mm-hmm. you know, has probably been the the heart of her kind of role in this leadership in this leadership position. Uh, as she goes, and you know, what we're seeing is the really the defining of the post Brexit uh, European Union because you know. Britain used to play a, an important role yes. in a lot of these things in the mm. past, and now Britain is no longer part of it. And I think the you know the European Union is arguably even more adrift. And so it's it's critical that as Angela Merkel fades from the scene, the Germans at a minimum have to come up with 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 uh, with someone. I suspect uh, you know until it's clear that Macron is re-elected in, in next year, April, yeah. that uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, casting about looking for who who sort of has a, a new and more effective and more attractive vision of, you know, Europe altogether uh, than is currently the case. And I don't know where that's going to come from, but it could come from some, some place that either we haven't heard from for a while, like Italy. Italy, Mario Draghi, potentially, right? yeah. Or, uh, or maybe uh, some leadership elsewhere, um, you know, uh, from a smaller EU country. I just don't know. Ah. So we'll have to watch that space. Now, it, it's something that you alluded to there, and it is, um, I suppose, part and parcel of uh, um, events happening in Europe. Uh, um, NATO, um, Jens Stoltenberg um, has, you know, flagged up uh, that the, the North Atlantic Treaty Alliance, our organization, um, is uh, very concerned by the buildup of uh, Russian troops on the border with right. Ukraine, Donbass, um, uh, for this simmering war that's been going on for seven years now. Fears are there rattling around about a, maybe a further annexation of eastern Ukraine after the, uh, uh, the annexation of Crimea. Um, indeed, you said there that Macron did call NATO brain dead. But now, with the Biden administration moving on, the pages turned from uh, the Trump era, um, what has changed regarding NATO and Washington? And is the situation in Ukraine and potentially Belarus as well with the, with the migrant issue, will that make or does that give NATO more strategic importance now than it did, let's say, under Trump? And what is Washington, what's Washington's take on this? I think, again, the first part of that, just to look at NATO, you have to take into account that um, what I was starting to get to in the last exchange, which was, uh, you know, Washington is kind of looking for, you know, the European leadership. Who who are the people Washington really needs to engage Mm. with? Now, I think everybody assumed after um, the Trump administration left office, finally, that... um, the Biden administration would come in, you know, and 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 do more than just assert, you know, America's back mm. uh, on the world stage, and would actually begin taking steps that would both reassure its, you know, key longtime partners like the Europeans mm. uh, and others that um, you know, and is prepared to do more to uh, consolidate that that new declarative stance. Into in in a, in a fashion that makes it harder to return, even if you know there's a change of administration to another uh, nationalistic re- Republican in in uh, three years' time, um, that uh, you know y- you will you will at least secure NATO's central role in American strategic thinking. Well, that hasn't happened, mm-hmm. and I think the uh, so you know, is America back? 
Well, you know, a lot was a lot. A lot has again probably been over overstated in terms of Afghanistan. Yeah, which uh, you know, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, I think, uh, to a lot of people, was a shock. It was a shock, indeed. I mean, but it shouldn't have been. However, you know, it it played out as something of a of a collective fiasco, even though it wasn't necessarily. I mean, a lot of NATO had begun to back off of Afghanistan anyway. Sure. but, you know, perception often ends up ruling reality. And I think that, uh, again, uh, what has not been clear, and we will no doubt talk about the domestic political angle in Washington in a moment, uh, part of that is probably due, part of what I'm describing is probably due in part to the fact that you don't have, the new, the Biden administration has not been able to get its senior officials in place uh, to, to begin making changes. You don't have the ambassadors in place that you need. You don't have the senior officials at the State Department in place um, to, to craft new policies and ideas. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the Russian challenge underscores, as it has been doing for the past 15, 20 years, mm. that NATO uh, is no longer sort of the greatest, you know, alliance that ever lived in the rearview mirror, it still has a reality that's important mm-hmm. now. But nobody is, is yet kind of figured out, um, you know, how to make NATO appear to be as uh, robust, relevant, or um, ready as it was during the, the height Cold, of the Cold, Cold War. War. Indeed, we're looking back to the uh, a couple of weeks back, um, we had um, Macron and Putin holding a, a one-hour, 45-minute telephone conversation. Um, Macron drew a line in the sand when it came to Ukraine, and then uh, Putin put the ball back in his court, saying, well, will you please tell your friends in Washington to stop um, your naval, or the U.S. naval maneuvers in our backyard? Does Macron, I mean, this, we, we all know that the... There's a, there's a certain playbook that Putin has. Nobody, he, he is quite unscrutable. Nobody really knows what his next move is going to be. Is he bluffing? Are we going to be looking at the gas tap being turned off um, as, as Europe um, heads into the winter? But by Putin saying to Macron, well, you know, you can go back and tell your friends in Washington that they can stop playing their naval games in my backyard. Does Putin really believe that Macron has any sway over... Joe Biden, when it comes to uh, what American foreign policy would be in his uh, in his stomping ground, I'm I'm old enough to remember when the the Soviets used the same playbook or or actually invented this playbook uh, with Western Europe in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, they always sought to find ways to sow divisions uh, among uh, the NATO allies. They they they, they sought to find. Um, ways and and even back then to some extent gas was a lever that the soviets used uh they also you probably remember uh or or aware of the you know the uh the short range and intermediate range ballistic missiles that were that were only had a range that was useful in europe but wouldn't have been useful anywhere else Mm -hmm. trying to you know intimidate europeans to to break uh on their side with uh american security guarantees lest you know things escalate to a point where potentially something horrible would happen i mean the you know the europeans uh so the so so for me putin being very much from that that era uh i think he knows that that he has a lot more levers at his disposal mm-hmm. than the europeans do to to to, to fight back uh, and it would help uh, tremendously, for example, if uh, Europe was not as vulnerable uh, in terms of 
gas uh, supplies. Sure. And if you didn't have this Nord Stream um, pipeline... Going that, through Germany, yeah. Right, that... Uh, that is a, a serious source of division and, and concern even for the United States. I mean, so there are all of these seams that, that, the, that the Russians see very clearly and they can exploit, uh, you know, on the Western side uh, that come into play, you know. And, and, and the thing with Ukraine is, is, is it's been for a long time uh, very much, I believe, in, in Putin's uh, uh, mentality to, think, to say that, okay, how, f- how far... Uh, can I push things, uh, but you know, at, at, with there being a clear risk that if this escalates, there's actually going to be a hot war. And is the West prepared to go to a hot war mm-hmm. on behalf of a country that is not actually part of NATO? Well, the other thing um, I'm sure that is also in, in, in Putin's mind is the U.S. has invested uh, some, I think, $2 billion in military equipment, as in hot military equipment, into Ukraine over the last seven years. Um, so is, can Putin use this, according to his playbook, as a provocation and as a necessary reason for him amassing troops on the border? Well, I don't think he can use that as a, as a reason for amassing troops on the border. Again, the Soviets were always very adept at being able mm. to figure out all of these sorts of ways to, uh, to niggle, create, well, to create situations that, uh, uh, that, that, that sort of they felt legally obliged them to, you know, to intervene or to, to be somewhat present in a, in, in, a, uh, in a certain conflict. And the Russians now are doing the same thing. I mean, by setting up this uh, this breakaway part of uh, of eastern Ukraine, uh, you know, much as they you know look at what they look at what they did in two thousand eight with Georgia mm-hmm. in terms of this, uh, the breakaway regions of Georgia yeah. that led to you know the uh, that brief war. I mean the you know there's a lot that that the Russians know they can do because. Um, in a way, either the West is going to be flat-footed or is not necessarily going to be prepared to cross a line um, that the Russians set, maybe even because the, uh, the, uh, the West doesn't fully understand it all. I mean, to, 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 tell you, you know, to, to, to bring it all back uh, uh, to the early days post-Cold War, mm-hmm. I have never understood why Germany... Uh, and Poland did not insist that Russia give up the Kaliningrad uh, enclave, enclave sure. you know, around what used to be Königsberg. Mm. Um, there's no reason why, you know, that's not a Russian settled area. That's, that was never Russian territory in the past historically. But that to me exemplifies how there's a problem with how uh, the West tends to think about these things. And these 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 risks or these situations where Russia you know, is look, looks to see how far it can go, the West allows it to kind of become um, uh, entrenched and all the more difficult to be able to get rid of. I mean, you know, nowadays you could arguably come up with a deal to trade Crimea for Kaliningrad. But I mean, yeah. but nobody's, nobody's, nobody's looking at it that way. And, you know, and the Russians just continue to, you know, create facts on the ground. And the further and further you move away from whatever it was like the annexation of Crimea... Uh, that was a provocation, the less and less the West is prepared to stand up to Russia to force it to back down. So, you know, will the Russians cross, you know, the border? Or will the Russians actually, you know, move into uh, eastern Ukraine now? I don't know. But, 
but I think that they're just they're, they're they're probing the way that they always do to see what kind of a response they get. Testing the fences. Mm-hmm. William Jordan, former U.S. diplomat uh, based here in Paris, thank you very much for being on Paris Perspective today, and thank you very much for watching Paris Perspective. We'll be back in two weeks' time.